This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer squad. And today we have the great unmasking. Or do we? When I walked into the newsroom this morning, two out of four people were still wearing masks and they were not the Zoomers. They were our younger staffers. And does that mean anything? Uh, there are various online tools to help you decide if you are at risk by taking off your mask. I think people know. So back to our newsroom, I'd say that being in a large space with four people you work with every day uh, is low risk. A crowded mall? Well, uh, that's probably a different story. Of course, we're all preoccupied with the war in Ukraine. And I wonder if there's a demographic difference for those of us who grew up while the memory of World War II was still fresh. Like to hear from you, as always, 416-367-5353. No, sorry, wrong number. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media. He is in studio. I am looking right across the desk at him. So nice to see you here, David. And also nice to talk to the other members of our Zoomer squad, Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and John Wright, Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion Research. Hello, everyone. Okay, we will begin with David. Uh, you're on masks now. We're We're behind a big plexiglass thing here, and we generally were not masked when we're on air. So um, how do you feel about all of it? I think that you said it right at the beginning. People have to make their, their own decisions. I think that we've long since passed the point, though, where there is a solid one opinion, a scientific opinion on the value of masks, particularly when you consider the variation of the the people. If I don't have COVID, if I've been vaccinated, now I'm putting a piece of uh, fabric over my nose and mouth versus no fabric. Am, am I doing it to protect myself from you or am I doing it to protect others from me? Because as of yesterday, they didn't need any protection. I had a COVID test uh, coming back from the U.S. a couple of days ago, and I've been vaccinated. So nobody would appear to be at risk uh, from me. So I don't know. I'm carrying around a mask with me. It's in my back pocket so I can put it on and take it off as needed as the situation changes. But I don't think there's this is just uh, becoming theater for me. It's just if you feel better doing it, great, do it. But it's not a. Uh, I don't think there's one scientific point of view that we can pretend any longer uh, is applied to every situation. Well, I think uh, what the doctors are saying is that if you're immunocompromised uh, or at risk, maybe keep wearing it or keep wearing it in a crowded situation. Bill, um, what's happening in Halifax there? Well, we're in exactly the same position that you are. The uh, the mandates were lifted as of today. Uh, so the decisions that I have to make here are the same that you and uh, David are making in the Toronto. And as far as I'm concerned, I, I, I must uh, uh, disagree a little bit with my good friend, uh, David, because, uh, you know, masks are the simplest thing that we can do. Uh, they, they do work. There's been confusion about exactly how and why and how much but but it they're not a restriction they're just something that part of our power to uh, protect protect ourselves so why wouldn't we continue to uh, 
wear them, especially when we're in uh, larger groups or places where we don't know folks around. And that's what I'm going to continue to do. And uh, when I see you in Toronto uh, two, two weeks from now, I expect to be sitting there with David and I will still be wearing my mask, except when we're speaking on the radio. Okay, you'll be sitting pretty close to him when no, you're... I'll put my mask on, Bill. I'll make sure. I have it, I have it right, right here. I, I'm, I'm triple vaccinated, so I'm not afraid of David. Right. Okay, you're not afraid of David. That's good. good what news. about John Wright? Hi, John. Hi, Lydia. You know what? It's uh, I'll probably be wearing mine uh, more often than not just because I've become used to it, and I'm a little more concerned about it, but... I think the three of us represent what's going on in the public right now. The latest polling that I have show about a third of the public who is fine with just going back to some kind of new normal, keeping an eye on the hospitals and to making sure that it, they're not getting clogged, being open to bringing in some kind of restriction locally, if in fact that's the case. Another third that are a bit more wary, um, but but exercising choice given a circumstance that may arise. And the other third, in fact, who will continue to wear their mask until they think that they are absolutely clear from all of this. So I think the, the critical word right now is choice. Um, you have the ability to make a decision on your own, whether to put the mask on yourself or on your child going to school. The question is whether or not that becomes a bit of a stigma or whether or not, uh, you know, we've got a new variant which may be inbound shortly from Europe, and where, whether or not that lands in uh, North America and starts to ramp things up again and on go the masks. So I, I think it's a matter of choice right now, and people are, um, are, are considering it for, for today going forward. And that variant is apparently extremely contagious. If you thought Omicron, Omicron uh, 1 was contagious, this is apparently even more contagious, though not necessarily any more severe. And David, you know, it's interesting because there is confusion about masks because like with so many other things, the guidance changed. And when we first started wearing masks, I don't know, was it, it was probably 2020, we were told the masks protect other people from you. But that guidance changed. It did. That guidance changed. And the conclusion was, well, they also protect you from other people. But uh, not everyone got that memo. Well, not everyone got that memo, but I think what's happened too, and perhaps it was inevitable because we're a couple years in, and we're sitting uh, as a neighbor to the United States, which has 50 different jurisdictions uh, and 50 different uh, health control, uh, let's say, operations going on. And we are not seeing a consistent variation in outcomes based on uh, that you can c- correlate back to the mask regulations in these states. So what happens, I think the confusion comes because people say, well, wait a minute, over here in this region, they don't have a mask mandate. Over here, they do have a mask mandate and there is no difference uh, in the outcomes. So if the masks are decisive, why isn't there that difference? Um, there could be very good answers that I, in my ignorance, aren't aware of. But Well, weather might be one of them. Weather might be one of them. Demographic makeup might be one of them. Time of year might be one of them. But um, having just been in the States for a couple of weeks, I didn't see um, any masks. And, uh, and everybody was operating without masks. And so, uh, I don't know. It is a matter of choice, and I think you have to respect everybody else's choice. I'm not against wearing a mask. I just think that we have, uh, as John said, entered the era of choice on this. Well, I, I think we have to be careful about uh, uh, thinking that uh, that is the, the, the recommendations have been confusing. Uh, you know, this this is science. This science changes all the time. We get new information, and uh, then we change our our uh, ways of thinking with the new in- information. And that's not unusual. The problem we've had was COVID. We've piled into less than two years science that normally would take even decades to uh, to show us what's really happening. So what we have to look at is what's really working now. And, you know, we've got some tools. They're not restrictions. They're just tools. One of them is math and, and the other is testing. And they're easy to do, not uh, not difficult. Don't prevent us from doing all the other things we'd like to do in, in life. So why wouldn't we continue them? And and that's why I'm concerned when 
uh, some people say that the, the science isn't changing. Yes, it's good for it, because if science doesn't change, it's not science anymore. Well, you know what? Uh, here's something interesting. In the States, the whole business is extremely political, totally, extremely totally, political. Totally. But here we have this is a tweet from a reporter at Queen's Park. Politicians are back at Queen's Park amid new masking policies. So out of 47 progressive conservatives present, 17 are masked. Out of 15 NDP MPPs present, 15 are masked. So what do you make of that? It's gotten to be a bit political here, too, as well, then. It is. It is. But but I think the confusion, I think Bill's completely right. If I, if, if I hear Dr. So-and-so with a chief public health officer say something today i can't i have no right to say well where why didn't you say the same thing two years ago because science does change the problem is that we simultaneously today have mask regimes and non-mask regimes and they are not producing uh quantitatively different outcomes and that's what's causing the confusion i don't think it's the changing advice about masks it's that wait a minute they're not wearing masks over here and they got the same outcomes as over there where they are wearing masks. So if the science was defined, why wouldn't the outcomes, why are the outcomes different? Well, and that's, and that's the problem. One thing always to be careful of, and I've been told this by doctors, that the science and the numbers are one thing and your case is your case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. exactly. Uh, which is uh, often how it goes. I think it's also, you know, a matter of just, Getting used to it. Uh, uh, I was in uh, California and came back a week ago. And at first I thought, ooh, this is going to really flip me out. And it did not. Took a day or two, but then you just kind of get yeah. used to it. Yeah. Well, I have no difficulty. I mean, if I don't want to seem like I'm the anti-mask guy on this panel, I have my mask right here and Libby, you can see it. And I put <laughs> okay, it on and I'll take it sure. off and put it on and take it off. Depending on where I am, I don't object to it, but I'm trying to explain why I think there's some pushback because we're not really talking about the desirability of it. We're talking about should it be mandated? I mean, every year we go through this pre-COVID, hey, flu time is here, get your flu shot. But it, there was no law that said you had to. Now with COVID, we do have these regulations and that's what's causing you know the controversy. Right, right. Uh, the other part of it is, and and uh, we will be getting into it a little uh, in a, in a little more depth when we talk to Dr. Peter Uni at the end of the show. But uh, you know, it could be that our timing is just terrible because we're all you know f for the last two years. You looked at what was going on in Western Europe, and uh, it's coming. And they are some of most, uh, a lot of the countries there are in the midst of a big, huge wave of this Omicron subvariant. And we might be removing mandates just in time for that. John, uh, how is the public, is, is that on the public radar? No, not that specifically. Um, I, I think, you know, we're just starting to get a sense that it may be coming. I mean, the New York Times today is just reporting <clears throat> how that may impact um, much of the United States, given how they have opened up uh, as well. So, no, it's, it's not necessarily on the public radar. I think the, the critical thing, though, is that there are people whose uh, who's either age or their own um, physical condition or their immune system, in fact, are very attuned to those things. And they're very attuned to the defense mechanisms which they can bring to bear. So wearing a mask is something which they will continue to do. If you look, no matter where uh, the early form of Omicron was or the new subvariant is, um, the the mortality rates for people who are you know over 70 years of age increased dramatically um, and are not so much impacted on those below that. So we've seen from the outset that this really has an impact on a very specific age group, and uh, which oftentimes has a number of, of underlying um, issues. And I think those are the people who are most vulnerable. Those are the people who continue to be vulnerable in long-term care or hospitalized settings. Those are the people, I think, you know, who will be much more cautious than the younger people who, even on the weekend, as you know, in Halifax, at Dalhousie, they were thousands and thousands of young people celebrating St. Patrick's Day in the streets and having a great old time, as was the case in Queens and Western and Waterloo. Um, to them, this is 
this is not as, uh, as something that they are that concerned about. But as you graduate in age and your own physical condition, that's when this becomes an issue of concern. Hmm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> by the way, of course, in long-term care in hospitals, mask mandates are still yeah, in effect. That's a good idea. Well, yeah, and they, you know, often wear masks even before all sure. this, of course, yeah. especially during procedures. So um, let us uh, shift topics a little bit. Uh, people are really preoccupied by the war in Ukraine, terrible war, terrible Russian aggression. And uh, I think also to a certain extent, that's kind of knocked COVID off uh, the top of the agenda. It has. It very definitely has. You can't, uh, all the all the all news, uh, so-called all news cable uh, networks are 100% on Ukraine, practically 100% on Ukraine now. So that's, everybody's worrying about that. And uh we're getting between the cable news and social media and news feeds. Uh, it's pervasive. It's everywhere. It's the topic. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting. I, I think there's probably a, a different perspective uh, among older versus younger people just because uh, boomers. We grew up when World War II, the memory of it was still fresh. And many of us are actually the children of people who were refugees and immigrants after that. Uh, John, uh, how do you see that? Well, I turned 65 on July the 21st. So uh, my earliest memories in um, kindergarten and grade one and two at St. Daniel's in Ottawa were actually to be under my desk occasionally. with the uh, air raid sirens and the experimental farm going off, when that would be a complete uh, disconnect for my kids who are still in university. Um, but it is a, it's a distant memory. I, I think when you look at the polling numbers uh, across the country, that there's not much variation in terms of the support of Ukraine, um, the support of, uh, of the trade sanctions, or anything demographically. The, the only difference that we've seen shift um, probably about a week or so into this issue was that while there was a view that we should be mo- being prepared for much more military intervention, that backed off <clears throat> immediately uh, upon the declaration by Mr. Putin that, you know, the use of nuclear weapons, or he actually didn't say that, but he, he kind of scared everybody to believe that to be the case, moved that only 13% of Canadians believe that we should be entering, you know, the territory or doing something about a no-fly zone. But Overall, um, we're, we're very much demographically and geographically lockstep with those who are in the Ukraine and pretty much behind uh, how the war is being fought right now. Um, yeah. And uh, David, is your sense that uh, there's any difference in who a lot of people think we're not doing enough? And is there any difference demographically or otherwise, or maybe by ethnicity, where where your parents come from and your grandparents? Well, I think, yeah, I think uh, ethnicity would be one. I'm not aware of any big sweeping uh, difference where, you know, older, quote-unquote, Canadians feel we should do A and younger uh, B. Um, anecdotally, my younger colleagues and relatives, uh, people in my own family, are, are even more uh, they're, they're actually slightly more hawkish, maybe, than the older uh, people that I know. They're maybe a little bit more willing to uh, to go a little bit further and very anti-Russian and uh, almost impatient with the measured uh, steps that the, the the Western leaders are taking. But I don't think there's a big sweeping uh, thing. But getting back to your earlier point about the memory, I think that for both baby boomers and everybody else, this is the first time we've actually seen this kind of brutality don't forget we grew up the iron curtain had already fallen like right at the end of the war so as children we grew up i grew up saying okay the ussr controls hungary and uh, we weren't there we didn't see well what do you mean the iron curtain didn't fall to 1989 no no i meant i meant created i didn't mean go away i mean when churchill said an iron curtain has descended over okay. Europe. So, but we, we, that was the way the world was when we first became aware of the world. So what Stalin's armies did in capturing those countries and killing those leaders and taking over was fed accompli in our life. Now we're seeing, though, and there's, there's 
Putin saying that that was a big tragedy. The the ending of the USSR was a was a, not just a bad thing selfishly, but a tragedy for mankind. We're going to restore that greatness. We didn't experience any of that any more than the kids of today experience. So it's a it's new to all of us, I think, and that's what the, why the, it's so horrifying because it's so obviously just aimed at civilians. Well, uh, it's also interesting and it's something we'll get into in our next segment in terms of uh, there are reports that Russians, especially younger Russians, are starting to flee in droves because uh, they might not be so happy about all the restrictions. But um, it is time for us to wrap things up. So uh, what would you like to leave us with, starting with Bill? I guess I'd go back to the uh, looking after ourselves. The restrictions are off, and that means we now are back to where we were before the pandemic, and that is we have to do what we believe is best to keep ourselves and our family and our loved ones uh, safe, and that should be our focus from, uh, from then on. John Wright. I think the raising of the curtain on what we've been doing, dealing with over the last two years is not absolute. I think, you know, if you're in the wings, you might want to do whatever you want, but I think you've got a very cautious public. They've become used to protecting themselves, and I don't think we're anywhere close to having people simply feel comfortable, mask-free especially, and hopefully not. Uh, We get some kind of a wave that's inbound over the next month or so. Okay, and David. And I'm in total agreement with Bill on this because we have talked in the past about it's up to you to take care of yourself. And that included the vaccines that included the boosters, the topics we've been discussing in in the past weeks. So I'm entirely in favor. Have that mask ready to go and use it as you see fit to protect yourself. Okay, thank you so much, David Kravitz. Bill Van Gorder and John Wright. Great conversation as always. Thank you, Libby. Good to be with Libby. Take care. Okay, we are taking a break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to follow up on something we covered last week, and that is the immigration situation. You know, uh, the government has said, we'll take in unlimited Ukrainians, and they released uh, a new legislation last week and we were looking for some rules but it looks like and we're going to check in with an immigration lawyer that uh it doesn't address the barriers that Ukrainians fleeing have in coming to Canada. So we'll be talking about that. Let me give you the numbers if you have thoughts on that 416-360-0740 toll-free 1-866-740-4740 we'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The government is hailing the program to bring in an unlimited number of Ukrainian refugees as unprecedented. But is it? The last time we covered this, we were waiting for details, and it looks like perhaps the devil may be in some of those. According to my read, at least, they do not address some of the barriers that many potential applicants are facing. And what do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740. 4740. And right now, I'd like to welcome Giddy Mammon, a partner at Mammon, Sandaluk, and Kingwell Immigration Lawyers, and Olga Chetvertnik, a venture partner with BRC Capital Partners, and she is actively trying to bring her family over to Canada from Ukraine. Welcome. Thanks to you both. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Let, Thank you, Libby. Let us begin with you, Olga. So uh, what's it been like for you? Uh, who who are you trying to bring over and how's that gone? Well, uh, I'm trying to bring over uh, my family, uh, my two cousins, my aunt and one of my cousin's two children. Uh, it has been very challenging because uh, they left Ukraine thinking they are leaving just for a couple of days. And they ended up being in Slovakia for three weeks without the car, without few things of personal belongings. And they uh, were staying at someone's house. 
Uh, and right now they are uh, traveling to Germany as we speak uh, because they can't stay at someone's place for too long, right? So now they are traveling to Germany. And I hope that from Germany we can start this application process. But I don't even know how long it would take to get biometrics appointments. I don't know how long it would take to get visa either. Did, um, did, did they at least take all their documents with them? They don't have all the documents with them, which uh, Canadian uh, government is requiring for visa. And this is very challenging. And although they have few uh, screenshots of some of them, I don't know if Canadian government would recognize them as, uh, you know, uh, proper documentation to upload for visa application. Giddy Mammon, the last time we talked, we were waiting for details. The last time we talked, the government said that Ukrainian refugees here can stay for up to two years without going for permanent residency. That's up to three years. But uh, what we just heard from Olga, they still need the documents and they still need to get to a Canadian embassy. Well, uh, there are there are lots of barriers that we are not clear about what is actually going to be needed. So, for example, uh, it says very clearly that people under this program uh, are still going to be subject to visa and travel requirements. So if you have one family member with a passport and another one who cannot get a passport, what happens? That's unclear. Uh, also, background checks. Um, we are still required to provide background checks. Uh, if there are no facilities nearby who are doing biometrics, or if those facilities are backed up by the numbers, uh, that could take a long time. Yet the government is saying that they can process these things in 14 days. But if they can't get a biometric done, what will that do to that, uh, to that time? Well, it's, it's, it's apparently weeks. Like you have to get to an embassy. So for people who are stuck in Ukraine, they can't do any of that from Ukraine. Uh, so they have to get themselves to an embassy. I mean, even most people are in Poland. Do they have to get to Warsaw? Uh, they're going to have to comply with these requirements. And even if those facilities exist in Poland, there are now, I don't know how many, uh, hundreds of thousands of people who are now in Poland all standing in line. So I, I don't, I've never known uh, Canada to have the resources to crank out a high volume of biometrics. So, unfortunately, there are practical barriers. We can say as Canadians, we can stand up on a hilltop and scream out that we're ready to give out an unlimited number of visas. The reality is somebody has to process all these biometrics, and we, we simply don't have the facilities or the manpower to do that in what I think... Um, is going to be a time that uh, your your guest on this show is going to be able to bring her family um, to to Canada. And and before we get back to Olga, I'd like to give the numbers out again. Uh, give me a shout, especially if you are trying to bring somebody over. And I, I I can't even count the number of people that I've encountered that said, "Hey, I'd be happy to take a Ukrainian refugee into my home," uh, but uh, this really doesn't look like that is going to help make that happen. The numbers to call four one six three six zero zero seven forty. Toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty and Olga, I I guess your relatives are at least in a good position in that they're they're going to Germany where I I don't know how many of the refugees are in Germany but it, that seems like it's a little better than than going to Poland or Moldova. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, I think that what I would like to add to the process as well, uh, not only, uh, you know, we have biometrics as a big bottleneck right now, but it's also the uh, forms uh, which need to be filled out online. And to your point, I am in Canada. I speak English. I have my laptop here. I can download PDF files the government is required uh, requires us to do. Uh, but I can imagine people who are right now in Slovakia or Poland 
who don't have access to laptops, who don't speak English as well as I do. And all, and I know from Ukrainian community in Canada that they are struggling to download the, uh, the documents and complete the forms. And the system is crashing at the same time. So I can only imagine like what they are going through being, uh, you know, somewhere else and not having people who are able to help them. And uh, talking about Germany and Europe, they opened the doors to all Ukrainians visa-free. And not only that, they are providing uh, subsidies. Uh, Germany, for example, is providing 350 euros uh, monthly for three months for Ukrainians. They're also providing accommodation for them. Not only Germans opened up their doors, but also government is providing. And, and this is a layered approach, and, and it's a more complex issue bringing in Canadians here, because Canadian government needs to look at this. Uh, they need to set up settlement agencies, government settlement agencies, to meet Ukrainians here at, at the airport. And uh, what also I wanted to bring up to your attention that some uh, Ukrainians uh, don't have, uh, for example, they're not fully vaccinated. And this is the requirement to come to Canada right now, which was waived for Ukrainians. But they need to be, uh, they need to quarantine for 14 days. Where are they going to quarantine? Right? Like all these questions, there is so much to address. And Canadians, uh, like Canadian uh, government is not prepared. And Immigration Canada is one of the layers of issues we have. But what is next for them? How do we integrate them? How do we help them when they come to Canada? Giddy, I mean, the government is crowing about, I think, 9,000 Ukrainians. But the, those are people who are already in the system, probably people who are already here, right? Uh, that's absolutely correct. Uh, the government is including in, in their numbers people who already qualify for other categories. For example, that may be sponsored uh, by their spouses or their, uh, their children. Uh, or maybe they're coming as professional workers uh, or investors, and the government has expedited the finalization of those applications. The real question, the real information that I think Canadians are looking for is how many people uh, have been processed under this program that is on humanitarian grounds because they are uh, war refugees. That's the number that we want to keep track of. And also... Uh, the issue of, um, you know, filing online um, is a real problem. If anybody has, you know, tried to uh, submit an application to sponsor their parents or their grandparents in the annual draw using the portal, the system simply does not handle high volume. We have people sitting all day when the lottery opens up uh, trying to get our clients in, and we can't because the system cannot handle the traffic. So now when you're going to have hundreds of thousands of potential uh, refugees uh, applying online, um, somebody has to tell me why that's going to be a different experience than the ones that Canadians have, ex- have experienced when they try to bring their parents to Canada. Well, I know that uh, some of the stakeholders who have met with the government have been told that the sponsorship route is not appropriate for this particular wave of people. I know that much, but... Well, that, that could be true. Um, there's another question. Obviously, we want to be as generous as, as, as possible with this group, but right now the government is talking about letting people stay here up to three years. Uh, a sponsorship, for example, is for life. That's for permanent residents. But this this conflict may be over. Like hopefully, it'll be over tomorrow. But it could be wrapped up in a week or two weeks or three weeks. This is not a war between... This is not a religious war where people will fight for years and for years. It's unlikely to be that. It's mm. probably a strategic war where, you know, two parties are engaged in violence in order to, you know you know, delineate some lines in the sand. Um, so I'm not sure why the government is offering three years, but if that that's the case, that's terrific. Most people who flee war tend to want to go back home as soon as the conflict is over. So I think what, need, what needs to happen is the government has to sit down and start working out the details. Uh, if there is a war, which there is, and people are at risk, which they are, Maybe biometrics can be set aside. 
you know, we we've, we haven't had biometrics forever. It's only in the last several years that we've had that. And maybe we should just take it on faith that the people who are coming are not, you know, terrorists, or, you know, war criminals. When they get here, we'll sort out the biometrics. But these are things that are going to be very limiting factors. It's not You're not going to see an unlimited number of Ukrainians because it's going to be very limited by the technology that's being used, by the biometrics, uh, lab availability, uh, lots and lots of things. Yeah, I mean th- that seems that seems clear. I mean, and then they have to get here as well. Olga, what would you like to see as you know a waiving of the biometrics until people at least get here? I, I agree. I, re- I agree with Giri. I think that's uh, something what Canadian government can look at definitely. And um, I also think that many of them would like to go back, and that's the reason why they are staying in Slovakia and Poland, hoping that this uh, the war will end very soon and they can come back to their homes. If they have right? homes so, to come uh, back to. If they have homes to come back to, exactly. Um, uh, and, and I think that uh, in, in Canada, uh, it's, it's not that easy to get to Canada. Let's start with that, right? So uh, another layer of... Uh, uh, things Canadian government can look at. How do we get uh, Ukrainians here? Uh, can we provide airfare for them? Uh, what can be done as well on that front? Uh, so I don't think that we will see a big influx of Ukrainians, even if we have visa-free uh, entry. I, I think that it will be limited compared to what Europe is experiencing right now. I, I'd like to take a call from another Olga in Toronto. Hello, Olga. Uh, yes, uh, hello there. I, uh, my name is Olga. I'm from Toronto as well. And I would like to contribute to Olga Chetretnik's point, um, if possible. Please go ahead. You're on the air. Yes. So I, I, my family, um, is in Canada and we have lots of relatives in Ukraine. For now, we were able to evacuate, um, our elderly grandmother from Chernihiv. She experienced uh, two weeks of horrific bombings and she's very distraught. For now, we were able to house her in outskirts of Kiev. However, now that we're looking at, desperately looking at measures uh, to bring her here uh, and waiting for a lawyer to call us back and contact us, it's, it's a very inefficient and very cumbersome process. So she's in Kiev. We need to bring her to Warsaw. Not everybody has resources to you know, accommodate their relatives for months on end, waiting for biometrics and waiting for visas. Even if the biometrics is waived, let's say, during her advanced stage, still even waiting for two weeks, sitting in Kiev is dangerous. She literally can get killed any minute. That's the stress that people are going through. So I think my point is that, um, first of all, Canadian government is definitely failing Ukrainians and Canadian Ukrainians, that's for sure. They pay lip service that they want to help, but their actions speak louder than words. The help is just not there. People are desperate, and they're dying every day. And another point is that Ukrainians are um, they're a special breed, really. They're very spirited people, and they love their country. So even my grandmother, she's saying, I will come to you, but my desire is when the war ends, I want to go back to my home. So that's something to keep in mind, that a lot of Ukrainians, some of them that even will get to Canada, they actually want to contribute here, but they want also want to go back home. So uh, we're not looking at people who are just coming here to, you know, unload on our social services system and stuff like that. Not to mention that Ukrainians are very entrepreneurial and hardworking people and would be a huge asset to, to Canada. So, yeah, I, I and, really hope and that... And not to mention uh, that... Most of those people are, are women and children. The Ukrainian yeah, men are not allowed to leave. That is so true. You know, women and children, elderly, why can't they just come here, stay here? We're not talking about um, able-bodied men, because those men actually stayed back in Ukraine fighting for their country. You're absolutely correct. Thank you. O- Olga, thank you very much for sharing your story, and we wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. Again, it's it's women and children. Olga, yes? 
Yes, it's women and children, and that's why I was shocked to learn the the reason behind the resistance from Immigration Canada to provide visa-free entry. Uh, it, they, they've done it under the umbrella of uh, uh, of the threat of uh, some uh, security threat in a way. And when it comes to women and children, uh, I think that this is out of question. Perhaps, you know, they are worried about some Russian... Uh, uh, I don't know, spies or agents, uh, but in reality, if they want to um, infiltrate into Canada, they're probably already here, right? So uh, that's, that, that's why the reasoning behind uh, not allowing visa-free entry uh, just makes no sense to me. Uh, and especially now, we, as Olga said, we need to get these people here now. They are traumatized. My family is traumatized as well. Olga's grandmother who is 89 years old. I can't, I can't even imagine what condition she's at right now. And uh, But having a family and, and just Ukrainian-Canadian community has contributed so much over the decades. Uh, we have 1.4 million Ukrainian-Canadians. Uh, this is the largest uh, Ukrainian diaspora in the world outside of, of Ukraine. So uh, I just I'm shocked that uh, Immigration Canada is not looking at that fact. That, yeah, uh, we've I think they, economy. they thought and we are, they, they probably yeah, thought the, the announcements uh, would cover it, but uh, it doesn't look that way. Uh, Giddy, before we start to wrap things up, I wanted to ask something like a different turn. Speaking of Russians, we're hearing that many young Russians are leaving the country, that there's a brain drain. Uh, because they're worried about uh, the new sanctions and the blowback. Have you started to see any kind of increase in inquiries from Russians? Uh, not really. Um, we certainly do expect uh, to see uh, a lot of young Russians leave. Uh, Canada has always been a destination of choice uh, for Russian nationals. Uh, right now, what we're seeing is an incredible a number of uh, people trying to get their Ukrainian uh, friends uh, and relatives uh, to Canada. That's really what we're seeing. Uh, you know, I, I'm getting calls uh, not just at the office, but in the evenings on my cell phone on the weekend. Uh, it's, it's just not stopping. And uh, I just uh, want to touch on a point that you guys were talking about uh, just a second ago. Um, Canada needs a plan that they can roll out uh, whenever a refugee crisis emerges. We've seen wars erupt for many years, and there has to be a plan that just you pull out, as soon as there's a war, you plan out, you, you, you execute that plan. For example, you were talking. Good, good about, idea. Good, you know yeah. what? I'm I'm sorry, Giddy. I have to stop you because we are like over time. This is a fascinating conversation. I want to thank you both, and I'm sure that we will have a lot more to talk to uh, talk about in the uh, coming days and weeks. So, thank you so much, Giddy Mammon and Olga Chevernik. Thanks very much. Bye bye. Thank you. Right. We are taking another break. And when we come back, we'll be talking to Dr. Peter Uni. He's guided us through the pandemic and he is soon going to leave us when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Dr. Peter Uni has guided us through the pandemic as scientific director of the province's COVID-19 science advisory table. But more than that, he's always made himself available to answer our questions. He's always straightforward and explains the science in terms that are easy to understand. And now he's leaving to take a job in Oxford, England. Dr. Uni, congratulations, but we'll miss you. Oh, I will miss you too. Thanks. <laughs> So uh, what made you make the decision to go? Just a good job? No, no. Um, look, we have uh, most of our family in uh, continental Europe, in Switzerland and in Slovakia, and our parents are getting older. Uh, two of uh, out of the four were quite severely ill during the pandemic, not COVID, which showed a bit the limitations, you know, of uh, just having the Atlantic in between and the uh, six time zones. 
And uh, two of our children, you know, our oldest daughter is in boarding school in Switzerland and she stubbornly would like to finish their high school. And our oldest son, we have a blended family of four, two small ones and the others are uh, are quite a bit older. Our oldest son is there and might have a family soon. So uh, who knows? So all of that, you know, uh, just uh, taken together when then this came up with, with Oxford, when they made a really generous offer, it felt like the right move. Even though it's really, it's emotionally really difficult and will be really difficult for me to leave, especially also for my wife, but especially for me. What do you, do you consider your, your tenure as the scientific director, which is a volunteer job as, is that the, the highlight or the thing that you'll remember the most? Oh, it's, so first of all, it's important to realize that this position was not a volunteer job because oh. I simply needed to live from something, oh. uh, of something. And I had, uh, you know, a 24 7 draw. So I was seconded by the Dalai Lama School of Public Health, who were paid as a Michael's Hospital part of my salary. Otherwise, I couldn't have done it. Everybody else, you know, all the senior scientists, they're volunteering. But uh, just to to, uh, to set the record straight, this would simply not have been possible. Otherwise, I couldn't have paid my mortgage. I I, I wondered about that because you seem to be spending an awful lot of time on it. Yeah, it was basically you no. Know, I couldn't do my day job anymore. They had to. Um, uh, so my my uh, Bruno, who was before um, uh, Bruno da Costa, was my uh, associate director at the research center that I was leading. Uh, took over as an acting director, and we had to reshuffle everything. It wouldn't have been possible without this accompaniment. But but it's clear, you know, with, I mean, it, I realize that now so much, how much of a privilege it was uh, just to be able to use my skill set here, you know, and to be able to help a bit. So, um, you know, the answer to your question is is really, yes, for, for, from from my perspective, this was... Um, you know, I've been, I've, I've, I've graduated in '95, uh, and uh, I've, <laughs> I've had quite a lot of experience with, uh, with a lot of things which helped me probably just to, uh, to help here, and uh, it was just like the right thing to do at the right time. So I was very grateful that I was given the opportunity to do that, and uh, it's uh, certainly. Yeah, something in, that I probably might also not be only be able to tell my children about, but also my my grandchildren. <laughs> um, a lot of governments, at least, are behaving as though uh, this thing is over. We're done with it. What's your view of that? Oh, you know my view. It's not a view. It's a fact. Even it's also a view, but it's mainly a fact. Um, it's it's not over that fast. So, what is really really important is to realize how tremendously well we did here in Ontario because people made a lot of sacrifices, because they believed in science, because they were solidaric. Um, you know, this, this made such a difference, and that's just really important. So we made it now to a point where the overwhelming majority of us, of all of us, has some immunity. Most of us, luckily, uh, uh, thanks to at least two doses of a vaccine. Quite a lot of us, of course, also through infection now. But this was invariably, you know, sooner or later, something like that would, uh, would, would have come probably over time. If we didn't have Omicron, it would have taken a bit longer. But uh, now with Omicron, you see that in, uh, in uh, Asian countries, um, it's just inevitable. You can't suppress Omicron. So what this means now is that thanks to the immunity that we all have achieved, uh, sort of, uh, to, to a certain extent, while we're still seeing infections because Omicron, as coronaviruses do frequently, now this starts to do that, um, is, is uh, evading the immune system. Thanks to the immunity, it will not just lead us back into the hospital or in the ICU if we don't have, you know, particular risk factors or are particularly vulnerable. So our risk is much, 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 much lower than before. But what this means is that the pandemic's face will change. No, it will be less threatening, but we need to still be alert and can't pretend it's over. But are, you know, some countries in Western Europe are seeing huge spikes of this new sub-variant. Are, are you expecting that to come here just as we're unmasking and taking it easy? No, not to the same extent. Why? Two reasons. The most important one is us. 
Um, again, this is Ontario. People still remain careful, take it slow and gradually. If you look at, you know, I, of course, I know my former home country, Switzerland, best if it comes to that. The Swiss basically heard on the 17th of February, okay, restrictions are lifted apart from masks in the public uh, transport and hospitals. And uh, they basically went back to normal. I mean, completely. And they pretend like the pandemic didn't, ex- didn't exist anymore and it backfires. I don't think that this is us here. We will do that differently. So, you know, ma- dropping mask mandates doesn't mean dropping masks. A lot of people continue to wear it. And remember, when you look at our modeling, the last modeling, I, I tried to incorporate some, you know, example scenarios that we used for our, for our assumptions and um, how these, you know, how the, the little wavelets that you, you see in hospital admission, etc., behave. What is the basis for this behavior? And the basis is that we think um, there's only a moderate increase, you know, by f- about 40% of the contacts that people have now in the next perhaps uh, two weeks or so, but also that about half of these contacts are still done with masks and the other half maskless. And this gives you a bit of a hunch, you know, if we do that this way, because we just wear masks out of respect for others and also for our own safety, when we think, yeah, it's probably not a bad idea, then we just do it. It it has become, uh, to a certain extent, a reflex to do so. Then things could work relatively well. The challenge is a bit, and that's really something that we'll see how it plays out, of course, schools. That's a, a bit of another topic. We'll see how it goes. I heard already this morning from uh, from my wife, you know, uh, so my little one, the eight-year-old, uh, was wearing his mask and he was already, you know, just uh, sort of uh, slightly harassed, you know, by, really? uh, by one of the boys. You don't have to, da 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 And then he stood together with another boy who was also masked and they stood strong. But, you know, schools are a bit of a challenge. But then again, in the school, the rest, what my wife told me, most of the older grades, uh, 75 to 80% of the the students have masks on here in in Toronto. Uh, Dr. Uni, you will be with us until July, or is that right? Until until June, yeah. So we, we uh, basically, they finished the small ones, the, uh, who are, who are uh, 8 and 10, they finished the school year. And then we uh, move over probably, I don't know, around 25th of June or so. So I'm sure we will be talking to you before then. Uh, thank you very much for this. And we appreciate your work very much. And I'm sure we'll be calling on you again very soon. Uh, thanks a lot. Okay, bye-bye. Bye, bye-bye. Right. Uh, So, by the way, if you could not get through today, please call back. We will be talking about Ukraine, unfortunately, uh, for the foreseeable future. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.